And we're back. This is Model Behavior. I am Michael G. Gable, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. I am a professional model. That's true. But I am by no means a model person. And that's why I'm so interested in people's stories, um, where they came from, how they got to where they are, where they're headed, what makes them happy, what makes them fulfilled creatively or otherwise, because it doesn't necessarily come easy for me. Um, I've not always been the happiest person. In college, I had the nickname The Scowler because I was very insecure, very standoffish, and maybe even quite angry at times. So I like to dig deep into the lives of people in the entertainment industry, people in the modeling industry, and the industries related to it, but also just people who I believe to be inspiring and who I think are on that path to living a more model life. And Um, I've been pretty open with my friends and family in the past about the fact that I can get pretty down at times and the past few days have been rough. Um, Nothing particular to point at to to really bring on that sort of depression, just uh, the way my brain works and taking all the right steps to deal with it, you know, diet and exercise and a a balanced lifestyle are part of it, but also talk therapy and um, some medication. So, you know, we're getting through it and uh, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So don't worry about me. Um, and this is a this is going to be an interesting podcast because we're talking about a book that's very dear to my heart, a book that sort of sent me on my own path to creative fulfillment. And that book is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Um, it's a book that when I read it, I said, oh, this book was written for me. And everyone I've given it to has had the same reaction. Because, you know, just like when it comes to mental and emotional health, you need to sweep the floors every day so the dust doesn't accumulate. You also need to do hard resets every once in a while and really deep clean the nooks and crannies of your brain. And this book is one of the ones I turn to when I feel like I need that. And I wanted to sit down with someone and just sort of rap about it. I don't know, talk it out agree about it, disagree about it, and just see where we landed. And I actually chose a friend from my college days, Joe Carden, who is a comedy writer and performer here in LA. We both moved to LA at about the exact same time, and we've been fighting that war of art ever since. So please enjoy. Oh, hey, Joe. Hey, Michael. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks How for are being you? here. Thanks for having me to your place to I, record this. Are you kidding me? Mike, this is an honor and a privilege and overdue. Yeah, you've been begging me to be a guest. No, you've podcast. been like, oh, model behavior. You were like, oh, it was going to be talks with Joe. <laughs> well, and then you're like, well, I need to, you know, ramp up, get other people listening before you really get into it. Before I bring in the, the ringer that yeah. is Joe Carden. Yes. Well, let's just get into it. Uh, The first question, as you may or may not be aware, is what were you up to when you were a seven-year-old boy? First off, I did know the question. And second off, I reached out to my mom. Did you? To get an answer. Good. She didn't answer. (laughs) She didn't reply. She didn't pick up. She left you on red? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And now I need to play it cool for a little bit. All right. But here's the answer to your question. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, first off, uh, not a virgin (laughs) at seven. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. dude. Or now you're just clarifying that right now. (laughs) No, when I was seven, I was a, uh, precocious, happy go lucky young blonde boy. Mm, Little toehead. Little toehead. I don't know if it was toe. It was just a, a lot lighter. Um, it, my hair was a lot more like the color of my frosted tips like they are now. Uh, but I was in Mrs. Del Negro's class, kind of class clown, the uh, youngest of four boys, right. and I never spoke at home, because, yeah, no, it's true. I didn't speak at home, uh, because my brothers were always talking, and, and so then I go to school, in, yeah. yeah, 
But I would just sit back and I'd listen and be the... So you absorbed their wisdom, but also had to find an outlet to get attention, probably in school. But yeah. you didn't feel like you were getting at home. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I would, first off, put the caveat, not wisdom. <laughs> uh, but certainly all of their Michigas. Sure. And uh, that's uh, Yiddish for I'm Jewish. Uh, and... <laughs> yeah, and so I would come into school and I'd be like, you know, a ton, a ton of energy. I, rem I, al I remember I was always very competitive in a way like I remember in first grade, a friend of mine who you know knew division, long division mm -hmm. going into first grade and I was furious. And then I had to learn how to, then I taught myself long division. I remember in second grade still like very competitive, but in a sense of... I don't really care about winning and losing so much as like being the best or being my best and okay. just like being, I was, yeah. And I was always very little too. Mm, same. I was very, well, about the end of elementary school, I just kind of didn't grow, which sucked, you know, cause you get into high school and you're just a little kid and everyone called me Mikey. Did you skip middle school? No, I was normal age kid, but just but. late bloomer. Yeah. So that comes with a lot of baggage. And I guess we crossed paths in college, went to the same college, mm -hmm. sort of knew of you because you played rugby and I was in a fraternity with a lot of rugby players. And I sort of knew this guy, Joe Carden, as a, an eccentric chap. I remember I went to a party at some like older rugby guys off campus house and they were there was a band there. And then you got on the mic and told a story about how you <laughs> took a friend's car, said you're going to Denny's to study and then drove it to Canada. Is that you? Uh, I will neither deny nor confirm that story. <laughs> but I remember you got on stage at this older rugby party. Yeah, it was at 12 Summer. I, at 12 I know what you're Summer, talking about. It was you know, Jesse Blum and all those guys. Yep. And I remember being like amazed that you could, I don't know, just take the mic at a scene where we were the youngins. I mean, I couldn't do that even if I felt like it was my domain, but we were at this cool party and you got on stage and told this funny story and people were kind of like, playing music to inflect your story and I was like wow this guy's a performer and then I saw you do some sort of comedy maybe you were like in an improv troupe or a comedy sketch troupe and it was down in the basement of the Lone Pine Tavern and you did something where you're you're talking about how you were an egg and like eggs had to be hard-boiled you're like some drill sergeant I don't know but I remember just being like wow Joe's a Joe's a performer that's really brave because I was not secure enough to do anything like that and then we both moved to L.A. at the same time, not having really been friends in college and realized, oh, we're here in L.A. We went to the same college. Let's, you know, kind of join forces and became good buddies from there on. And you were just neck deep in the comedy scene from the start. Mm -hmm. You came out here sort of treating it like grad school. You did every UCB, Groundlings, I.O. I don't know how many shows I went to, how many showcases I went to of yours mm -hmm. because it was just so fun to watch you progress in that realm. And I was also a little jealous of you because I remember talking to our good buddy, Andrew Lane, and I was like, what's Joe doing out here? He was like, I think he's trying to do comedy. And I was like, that's so cool. Because I moved out here with, a, you know, just a different job and had my own aspirations of getting into the entertainment scene, but couldn't say it out loud even at that point. But you were doing it. How did you go from being a philosophy major at Dartmouth to <laughs> comedy guy? Well... Also, or I doubled in classics as well. Even but I remember uh, one of my professors, uh, Bernie Gert, leading Hobbes scholar cool. in the world. I was on his foreign study program in Edinburgh, and I, we were writing a paper on identity, and I, it was like a five or seven-page paper, I forget. And I spent about two pages of it just describing the plot of Face Off. I mean... What a great movie. Yeah, as my identity. So I wouldn't say I was a very serious philosophy student. Definitely far more serious as a classist. But the point is of why I'm bringing up Bernie Gert is that I remember he's like, if you're majoring in philosophy and you're not trying to be a philosophy professor, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> is it, and But here's the thing. He's like, this is some kind of joke. And I was like, it is. Exactly. It is some kind of joke. 
And was that something you consciously knew, or was that sort of a, an aha moment for you? No, I mean, I always knew it, but it was nice to have uh, somebody with a PhD tell me that. Yeah, uh, val- validates it. <laughs> yeah, very much so. That's one of very several very important conversations I had with professors. Not so much conversations, so much as somebody shout at me about something. Uh, but no, well, the reason why I studied philosophy in classics was because uh, I believe it was Thoreau, but uh, just sucking the marrow out of life. And I always really try to, whatever I'm in, really just sink my teeth in like full bore and just kind of become as much of whatever it is as I can. And Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to sound ridiculous about that, but the reason why I studied classics and philosophy is we went off to Dartmouth and I was like, what do you do at Dartmouth? Yeah, And it's like you put on your elbow patch, tweed blazer, sit in front of a fire and read books from ancient old white men. Yeah, it's a very classic liberal arts institution. I remember taking Latin one in Dartmouth Hall in this really old classroom. And then the professor was, you know, writing out Latin declensions on the board. And I was like, oh, this is what you do at Dartmouth. Like this feels so out of like dead poet society. You know, mm-hmm. it, felt, it felt so appropriate. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't go the classics route or the philosophy route because I didn't have the academic rigor to deliver those papers and I don't know, test myself that way. But I do get the idea that that's what you do there. That makes sense to me. Well, I mean, you certainly could write a philosophy paper if you know how to describe face off. (laughs) But besides that, I, I remember distinctly just thinking like, why am I here at this place? I was making films in high school and I remember I walked in and I tried to do like a film class my freshman year and I wasn't let in and because of freshman. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all right, well, I guess that's that. And then I did acting as well. And I remember I was, and I, I don't mean to say, but I'm, I'm good at it. Yeah. Right. And so, all right. I, the play. I, I saw that as well at Dartmouth. Yeah. Tom Jode. I worked very hard for that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for seeing that. But I remember I worked very hard for that because Professor James Rice, who I have nothing but I can only sing yeah, his had, praises. Like acting with him as well. He's an amazing, amazing professor and really supportive and really, uh, really got into it and really dived deep. But at the beginning of acting two, he called me into his office and he's like, look, you're, you know, you take this class, you take that class. Next thing you know, you got a theater minor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And I dropped the class. Mm. And I, it was one of these things where I was just like, oh, it's it's not like, oh, I'm shying away from, you know, um, a mentor or somebody who's supporting me. But it was that same thing where I was like, I'm at Dartmouth. If I was at, and I'm not trying to like, Dartmouth is an amazing theater program, all, all of that. But again, I was like, oh, what can I, I always kind of knew this is what I wanted to do. And part of me is like, oh, I should have dive full born to that but yep. at the same time I was swimming in Dartmouth and I dropped the class and I took a class on third world development and geopolitics yeah I, I relate to that because I went to Dartmouth as an economics major and I was like you go to Dartmouth and you become an eye banker that's Joe Seltzer <laughs> sorry soda stream <laughs> you go to Dartmouth become an eye banker you make a ton of money and then you're happy and after getting a C in econ one I realized well that's probably not my path so I'll become an English major go to law school make a ton of money didn't like reading books that people told me to read. So I had to go back to my roots of what I really wanted to do when I was in high school, which was just draw. I wanted to be an artist. So I eventually, uh, in a very roundabout way, which is a story for another podcast, became a fine art major. And I, I relate to your, uh, your resistance to becoming an acting minor, a theater minor, because it's not a common tract at Dartmouth. You don't hear about a lot of people who are trying to make it as an actor or trying to be artists. You hear about people who are trying to be bankers or consultants or history majors or philosophy majors or things that they're never going to use in the real world. So there's a lot of pressure to conform to that sort of ideal, I think. And some might call that pressure resistance. And part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast with you because I've been trying to get you to read this book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which you finally did. So this is a, a book report of sorts. But the cool thing about you being a classics major is that a lot of what Stephen Pressfield talks about in The War of Art is the hero's journey. And classics, that's the root of all storytelling. And most storytelling follows an arc, which is what Joseph Campbell would call the hero's journey. 
And maybe part of your journey was resisting that feeling you had towards acting or a theater minor or something more in line with what you wanted to be doing than studying philosophy or classics. Well, I hear that and I would respectfully disagree, or at least my experience was not that. Mm. Because, again, like I still did perform, like I was yeah. Tom Joden, like I I did that. Like I did, I worked my way. I was not in the theater department, but like I was doing bit parts in the main stage plays, mm-hmm. working working my little tush off. Yeah. Um, really just like giving it my all in everything that I did. And then finally senior year, they, I was the right person for the role. Yeah. Um, and I really worked hard at that. So I wouldn't say that I, I necessarily shied away from it, but in terms of what did I want out of my Dartmouth experience was being in the same way that I love classics and philosophy is taking a very holistic approach or a well-rounded approach. So in the same way, like you knew me from playing rugby and I played rugby and Mm -hmm. I was in a fraternity and I was the executive editor of the philosophy magazine. And I did that. I did a government commission and a whole bunch of other things where at the end of the day, I still didn't feel like I accomplished much. But that's also because I just wanted to, again, just suck the marrow out of whatever it is. And so to your point about banking and consulting and that path, I never thought I was going to be doing that. Not once, I feel like. I always kind of knew I was going to be doing this in a very real way. And I always knew that I didn't necessarily need that education to do this. In fact, I would say that it kind of ruined me. But I think the reason why I, I mentioned all this is this is another conversation I had with a different professor, Professor Paul Christensen, who, again, I can't sing his uh, praises highly enough. He worked in banking, and one of the things he said when we were graduating or, or before then was, he's like, why do they pay 21-year-old kids six figures mm-hmm. right out of college? And the reason is because they're working a hundred hour weeks, yeah, and or more, or more, or more. And what they're doing is they're trading money for their youth, mm-hmm. and so it's opportunity cost. And he's mm-hmm. like, "This is what you're being paid for." And I was like, "Aha, mm. opportunity cost." And I started thinking in a lot more economic terms. This also has to do with my study in numismatics, but that's a different story. <laughs> You can tune into that. I'm going to start a podcast. It's called Numismatics. Numismatics with Joe. Numismatics. Nuts about numismatics. And (laughs) so in the same way, I always knew I was going to be doing this. But when you're saying this sort of resistance to getting into it, and maybe that that kind of is true for me in a big way, which is I did have this sort of resistance in terms of diving into pursuing this, but I resisted uh, real hard by then fucking off to Asia for two years mm-hmm. and then traveling for another 11 months after that. And all all of that had to do, again, with opportunity cost, which is I was like, this is my youth. I'm never going to be able to do this again. I always knew that I was going to be going out to L.A. Yeah. I never vocalized that. I was too scared to say that. Yeah, I hear you. But I knew it was always going to be there, whereas me being fancy-free young man of the world... And Stephen Pressfield, or in The War of Art, he yes, he does talk about Hero's Journey, but actually he talks a great deal more about Odysseus, mm-hmm. yeah. the Odyssey and the Muses, and all of that. And one of the things that, and I say this very humbly, but I take to heart Odysseus, how he uh, traveled the world to know the minds of men. Mm-hmm. And I very much so wanted to do that. I wanted to be the thing. I didn't want to do the thing. Um, well, I mean, you think about it in, in a couple of different ways. You know, you're not going to have the chance to travel the world as a broke open micer. That's for sure. And another thing I hear, I mean, most of the podcasts I listen to are comedians because I just like their perspective and it's it's a lighthearted way to get through L.A. traffic. But they kind of say the same thing that Professor Christensen told you is like 21 year olds don't have shit to say about the world. Go out and live your life. Find some funny shit to say about it and then get on the stage and tell me about it. You got to have a little bit of, you know, as much as I envy people like Bill Cockcamp who don't go to college, move here at 18 and just do the damn thing. I do think there is a benefit to having some life experience that isn't L.A. because L.A. can be very one note 
and you can get trapped into I don't know LA comedy LA life LA distractions all kinds of things oh very much so not to say that I stopped living but I never had time for friends never had time for anything other than doing comedy mm-hmm. when I was just doing that full-time and when I say full-time I mean basically interning because I wasn't getting paid yeah, but you were taking classes full time. You were a full time. Oh, I was student. doing full time, yeah. full time, full time. That's I lived, breathed it. I didn't I missed a lot of relationships. Mm-hmm. Like friends who are all now married and have kids and now all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, I realize I should be hanging out with you. They're like, Cool, I'm free until six. Yeah. And also not free at all. Um, I have a baby, and I'll I have a baby, and I've got a wife who is a real ball and chain. They don't say that, but <laughs> that's that's a, a real battle axe, to quote Norm Macdonald. But yeah, but I mean, I I went through a similar thing when I kind of dove headlong into modeling because I didn't just have some stratospheric career. I had to chip away at it and spend a lot of time living month to month and not being able to go to weddings and bachelor parties and trips with friends and missed out on a lot of things I'll never get back. And now, yeah, these friends are settling down and having kids and I try to make more effort to see them, but it's not as easy because they're not as available. And that's a bit of a struggle, but it is a trade-off I chose to, to make. Yeah, I think when you say that, oh, to become 21-year-olds don't have shit to say, I think, frankly, that's a virtue because I've never been able to accurately or even really dive in and this is my own resistance and me not being vulnerable and fearless and all these but I've certainly tried at times but I've never really again gone full bore I haven't been able to communicate my experience mm-hmm. my experience in Asia my experience traveling because it is so alien and so foreign and in order to connect with an audience instead of me reaching out to them that's me being like hey fuck your life yeah check out all this cool shit I did and people don't want to hear that unless you find a way to make it relatable and find the humor in you know the similarities there's there's ways to spin it I suppose but I do understand that that's not the most you know the average audience member at an open mic is not gonna be able to relate to your time teaching in Singapore of course but if you do find your voice I think you can make any experience relatable yeah I mean comedy I think it's interesting to say about open micing. So open micing did a hell of a lot of, and then also doing shows where I would actually be in front of a real audience and they would connect with material way more differently. And I realized who, who was I really trying to perform for? Right. And was I trying to perform for these uh, open micers and I'm not uh, shitting on them, but uh, far from it, but really trying to find who your audience was and dear listener, uh, I will say this, which is that Michael, besides being a tremendous podcast host, <laughs> renaissance man, artist, model, stand-up human being, truly one of uh, your support throughout all of that, going to so many shows, yeah. means the world to me. Of course. Absolutely means the world to me. Yeah, I mean, I I lived in Venice for you know the beginning of our time here in LA, and you lived across town, and... You'd be like, hey, can you come to this show on a Tuesday at 9 p.m.? And I'd make it work. I talked about this in the episode with Mike Glazer, who you introduced me to through one of your shows. And it's so important to support other people's hustle in their art because it's not necessarily that they need that validation, but they do need encouragement and they need to know that someone gives a shit. Someone who can, you know, maybe catch their eye when they're on stage and just nod like, yeah, man, you're doing it. You're doing it. Maybe the audience isn't rolling on the floor laughing, but you're there and they're there and that's all that matters is just doing the work. And I watched you, I mean, you came to LA and you hit the ground running. You did the work. You, like I said, you went through all the classes. You started doing your own open mic in the second floor of a Chinese restaurant on Hillerst, which was so much fun. Attic. The attic of a Chinese restaurant. Banquet room. <laughs> and I used to love going to that show because A, I envied the people who could, had the, the balls to get up there and do comedy. I loved watching the people who had bad jokes and good jokes and great jokes and the, you know, the killers who would drop in. Uh, and I also just wanted to support you. And, you know, sadly that tenure came to an end when the palace Chinese restaurant closed down four and a half years. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an impressive feat in LA and, you know, weekly. And it was, I know that you say it was an open mic. It was, but it was also a show that nobody attended, (laughs) but I did have, I had really good, I mean, amazing comics. And I think to the point of that, which is, the work ethic is unbelievable. Like you said, these people dropping in and doing all this other stuff. And it's because 
it is work and it is miking and miking and miking and mm-hmm. to use classics reference jokes don't appear fully formed like athena from zeus's head mm-hmm. you work and you work and you work and it's so satisfying to see people who i know have worked so so hard achieve the success that they do there's a lot of jealousy there's a lot of envy mm-hmm. the only jealousy and envy that i ever experience which is a standard trope is like how did that guy get that gig yeah, or rather yeah. not when I say that gig is that stage time. It's just, you want that stage time, but somebody's success, if they're out there and they're working it, I just can't knock that at all. Yeah. And I mean, I love, I did stand up one time at your, you did. I was going to say that you're uh, tremendous. It was not tremendous. It was, it was, it was something me. to do. And I felt, I felt proud that I was able to get up there and do my four minutes and get uh, one chuckle or two chuckles. But I was fucking rolling in the aisles. When I got up there, I didn't have the experience of, oh, this is what I was meant to do. It was something that was fun to try and just to get out of my comfort zone, but it wasn't for me. And so I still love going to the comedy store and the improv, and we're going to Mike Glazer's show tonight because I just love comedy, and I always try to get you to go, but you never want to go. And your usual response is it's too painful. It is. So why is that? Because I'm not on stage. Why not? I'd say story so i know for somebody who's done as much stand-up as i have i really don't get to the punchline very quickly (laughs) which is maybe why i'm not doing it as much yeah but a story if you will please which is a little longer take it so i mean i was doing stand-up stand-up improv sketch everything and then things would fall away i stopped doing as much improv because when i started to be able to bottle things i wanted to be able to bottle and actively work on things and not to say that i wasn't every time that i get on stage doing improv it part of that the beauty of that art form is it's a mandala right it just it's gone in the wind right but i wanted something that i could keep on working at and then also doing sketch and i was doing a lot of sketch and then teams get cut and then organizing people is hard and then i didn't want to rely like i put on shows at ucb and they were all me to do Mm -hmm. it and then you get people to do the things that you want to do you were there i did for a year and a half i did what 15 live shows of my the original late night talk show with joe carden which started as a bit because i didn't want to do another stand-up show Mm -hmm. Uh, i was asked to do a a stand-up show at at nerdist quite kindly and i was like there's enough fucking stand-up shows i want to do this and i'm gonna put my name right smack dab right on this thing yeah and um to quote uh one of the producers that i've had uh it's the uh flea market late night (laughs) comedy show where i come out in my three-piece suit yeah and treat it like the biggest thing ever have multi-camera setup and then wonderful mike glazer hero of mine playing the rain Uh, stick yep He's a house band on the rain stick. Yeah. <laughs> um, just wearing one of his, you know, normal shirts. Yep, wearing a shirt, being We're, high as fuck. <laughs> yeah, being high as fuck. And then I'm out there just with my hair all greased up and, mm-hmm. you know, doing the thing. Point is, uh, I've worked very hard and it's painful because I had to work. Right. right? I needed to make money. And yeah. so I found my way in and, and kind of looked into it, but I got to work and it was pretty amazing. Uh, but I got to work for one of my comedy heroes, Sasha Baron Cohen. And yeah. it's really validating to have him bring you into the writer room and be like, this is a really funny guy. Yeah. And then I'm working for him. And then all of a sudden I'm not doing as much, but I'm getting a steady paycheck. Not to say that my uh, my fangs were dulled, but I'm not out there. I'm not hustling every single day. I was doing, I was going out for commercial auditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to get you that agent yeah. if you recall it I didn't work didn't, <laughs> didn't work the guy's me. like oh i don't know and jokes on them because they kept me and <laughs> quickly dropped me when i was like oh, i'm sorry i've got to i can't make that audition i could have but uh i didn't and so then i started working and then i that job exploded and then the next job was just also a very cool sexy development entertainment mm-hmm. job but i didn't want to be on that side of the desk yeah and the palace fell away and i was still doing stand-up and all these things but also not with again that same frequency i was doing you know groundlings advanced lab and all these things i was still doing it but i wasn't and then a year in i exploded and uh i to quote the moby dick 
which is truly one of one of these really really important books to me but it was high time that i took to the sea mm -hmm. you know there's a damp drizzly november in the soul a grimness around the mouth and i was so unhappy and luckily uh one of our friends or a dartmouth acquaintance of both of ours, I never really hung out with him, but I took to the sea because uh, he was moving. To the sea. I literally took to the sea. He was moving from Florida to San Francisco via the Panama Canal on his ship that he lives on. Yeah. And I, not a sailor, nothing, but I left the job following Tuesday. I was in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And first time we went on the water... I had all my bullshit with me. I was gonna. I was shooting a documentary. You brought a drone and cameras a, and an amp and a mic. All of this stuff. Yeah. And uh, and he had a rowboat, not a not a motorized little dinghy. He's like, oh yeah, getting out from the beach to the boat, we have to go through the surf. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it's uh, like half the time it capsizes. And I'm like, oh, all right, great. I got all this shit. Yeah. Uh, and we weighed down the boat, put all my electronics in his, my bag was not waterproof because I'm a brain genius. And I'm sitting in the uh, front of the boat and the first wave just soaks me. And it's pitch black and it started raining and there was a storm coming and there's lightning in the distance. And uh, the only time in my life the thought crossed my mind, I was like, I want my mom. <laughs> I want my mom, and I'm being dead serious. Where I was like, sure. humans don't belong out here. Yeah. They do not belong no, out the here. The sea doesn't give a shit. The sea doesn't give a shit. And then I finally we got on the boat. I brought two bottles of rye from duty free and got some liquor, and I was a lot better. And then mm -hmm. I was at sea for a month. Yeah, just the two of us crewing this boat. It wasn't like oh this romantic yachting. Like no. it was like let's not die. It's hurricane season. We're going through some pretty gnarly territory longest stretch was five days five nights at sea mm -hmm. we're like ghosts in the night we're pulling three hour shifts for him four hour shifts for me so i'm getting like three hours of sleep at a time because he's the captain he's keeping us alive and so that's five days of that where i'm just getting wackadoo you're surrounded by the ocean on all sides you haven't seen land in forever we we ducked out we went from costa rica all the way around to mexico to avoid pirates which is still a real thing yeah somebody avoid pirates. if you see a little boat on the horizon it's eight miles uh to the horizon and just take out a little motorized boat you got a gun They'll steal your drone steal my drone which i was not gonna let happen and um just talking about Odysseus, this wanderer at sea for so long, and his great enemy is Poseidon. Mm -hmm. And I realized uh, through all of Greek myths, they always, they're like Zeus and Poseidon and Hades are the three big gods. Um, obviously, there's the nine, but mm -hmm. um, they're the big guys. And they always talk about Poseidon. They're always scared of Poseidon. I never really got it because in our own, you know, Judeo-Christian belief system, I hate saying Judeo-Christian, but our structure of like oh it's the sky god is the you know the guy with lightning yeah, bolts yeah the man in the sky nah but you spend time at sea you're like fuck that dude like power of the ocean the, oh my god and so you have to name it so i do call it poseidon and maybe this is me getting cracked out but there's this vastness and you have to name it like it is a sort of mystical experience not something you can necessarily communicate on stage it doesn't it doesn't care it's not trying to hurt us it's just first off humans don't belong at sea yeah it's just different i firmly believe that there's no reason for us to take to the sea well, i've seen you surf so i believe <laughs> that you believe that oh my god <laughs> i have a tempestuous relationship with the sea i have ptsd in a i believe it yeah big way from almost drowning yeah getting dashed upon the rocks yet again not to compare myself to odysseus uh, but i will <laughs> that's the, probably the third time not the last but i do have thoughts about the odyssey and how he frames it but that's a different story I start calling you jodysseus Hey, <laughs> that's I'll I'll take it. That same not caring, this not anything. It's a lot like performing, mm -hmm. if you will. I remember when I did my first show. There's no, there's no higher high than being on stage, and no lower low than not being on stage. And I remember when I did, if you remember my thirty minutes to kill at yep. UCB, my Taken parody show, where yep. I did this show and it went great, and I did it all myself. I mean, obviously, I didn't do it all myself. I had so much help from so many different people, and I am so grateful for that. But you walk off stage, and there's nobody there. Right. There's nothing, and this is vastness and this immensity. And I think about that, and I think about the fact that I had that show that ran the palace. Mm -hmm. We're having fun here. 
And then I had the original late night talk show, the Joe Carr, and I had all my other sorts of things. And nobody's asking me to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Not one. It's just this vast just indifference. In well, that's it, what I find interesting is that you know you kind of bailed on this. You'd gotten off course in L.A. and you hated it, so you bailed and you literally jump ship and you end up, aside from Max, completely isolated against this vastness. And Stephen Pressfield talks about. What would you do if no one else on earth existed? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger would go to the gym. Stevie Wonder would play the piano. And what did you do on this boat in the middle of nowhere with no one watching? You recorded a stand-up special. I did. With you at the helm of the boat and a microphone in your hand, spitting your stupid jokes out into the wind. And I was just like, that's so beautiful. That's so amazing that you got reacquainted with the thing you wanted to do, no matter the circumstances. And maybe it took that isolation and that vastness for you to to find that but then you return to land and I don't think you got on stage as much and then recently you you showed up at a friend show and did a few minutes on the mic and as we were driving home you were just like I need to do more of this and that's when I said well you need to read the war of art because something in you tells you you need to but then there's another force that's telling you don't do it and so what did you take out of this book what did you what did you get from it it was a wonderful book and I thank you so much for giving it to me and I Absolutely devoured it. In, uh, it's a quick read. It's a very quick read. And I should have read it a long time ago is the answer. It puts to words a lot of difficulties and a lot of things that I know to be true that I've done in the past. One of the things that really sticks with me is the professionalism, which is that you show up and you do it. Mm-hmm. And there were long stretches. I wrote every day mm-hmm. and I had yeah. I had a quota and I was like, this is what I do. And when I'm writing scripts, I do that. But when I say when I'm writing scripts, I do believe that inspiration is bullshit. Uh, there have been things that have woken me up in the middle of the night. In the book, he talks about how, oh, you you know, the amateur, you yeah. know, waits, waits for, for inspiration to strike. Waits for inspiration to strike. And I, I firmly believe that's bullshit. Like the hardest part, the only thing that matters is sitting down. For me, it's always as soon as I sit down, it just comes. Yeah, and like, you just sit down and you do it. The anecdote he gives is that someone asked Somerset Maw if he waited for inspiration to strike, and he said, "Yeah, of course." But it strikes every morning at nine a.m. when I sit down at my computer and start to write. You know, and he gets into this nomenclature of muses and genies and things like that. But it's all just, it's all just a metaphor for. You need to open the channel. You need to sit down and pound at the keys. And if it's just A, 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 and then all of a sudden, oh, I got an idea. You got to be there and be ready for that to arrive. And I definitely believe that there's something to that. Well, I think it's not that it arrives. I think you show up. I mean, it's always there. It, yeah. It's always there. And not to um, bite that, but either you wait for it to arrive or rather you arrive and i think one of the things i love about stand-up and performing is like guess what it's fucking showtime get up there and do it like how many shows that you saw me do mike that i threw together (laughs) like minutes before if that and part of me is like i wish i were more disciplined because i know what i get when i do the work in terms of you practice it, you hone it, you hone it. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing quite like having the gun to your head, and that gun is time. And one of the things that Stephen Pressfield also talks about is when you realize you have so little time, what do you do with it? Like, you know, the cancer patient who finds out they've got a month to live and then goes off and flourishes. Yeah. I don't want to say this about inspiration, but something that certainly has happened to me, and whenever I've written one of many things... One of the common themes is I stare into the void. It's me. I've stared into the void and I say, fuck. And then I just sit down and I go to work. Mm -hmm. And it's me just fighting against that. Just me in that middle of that maw. And so this putting words down on a page is in some way what's building me that ladder out of that pit. And I think, why am I not on stage anymore? I love it. I absolutely love it. But there's so much about the getting on stage that I do not love, which is the relentless self-promotion. It's not the, if I, if somebody's like, Hey, you've got stage time right now. I'm there. I am there. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. Mm -hmm. But it's the relentless self-promotion. It's the, um, all the other sorts of things that you have to do to get on stage. And so what I found was like, I could do that. And I did that. And it, and it's, it's tiring. It gets, it, it wears on you where you're like, is this more of the work is going into that than it is into the performance itself, which is maybe ass backwards, but certainly 
you know this from doing your paintings, your collages, mm-hmm. which is there's nobody there. No one. There's nobody there to show these things. And I like that is what comes with the territory. It's not some romantic vision of all I have to do is show up. You know, whenever you see stand up depicted on in a movie or something, it's like always that one set that changes your life. And there's yeah. certainly that can happen, but that's. You know, they say it's like oh, uh, you become an overnight success after 10 years of work. Yeah. And that's certainly the case. But, I mean, that's a long, long way to go. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, stand-up, you can't hone a stand-up comedy routine in a vacuum. You need stage time to practice jokes. Because any joke you write alone, you're going to have to work out because it's not going to be as funny as you think on stage. And that's what every comedian will tell you. Whereas if you're a musician or you make weird serial killer art, you can do that alone and then show it to the world in its finished state. And they'll take it or leave it. But stand-up... You know, you have to get on stage. And if you don't enjoy that process of getting on stage, maybe that version of comedy writing is not your uh, territory, as Stephen Pressfield will call it. Maybe yours is more of an isolated, you know, script writers sort of format. And this isn't I'm not trying to nitpick at you and figure out what no, you, what you want to be doing with your life. But I do see a lot of parallel between our journeys and the fact that we came from similar circumstances and we're in the same place doing creative things. And I'm in this place of like, yeah, I'm, I've I've carved out a career in modeling that's very fulfilling. But at the end of the day, I'm a glorified shoe salesman, which I've talked about before. No, and the modeling world is what it is. And I, you know, have my serial killers, and I published a book a while ago. But I'm I have this sort of vacuum that I feel right now, which is like I need a project. And I just reread The War of Art in advance of this podcast, and I mean, it's one of those books where, like I had to stop and pull over and replay sections on my audiobook because I'm just like, fuck, what do I need to do? What do I need to put out in the world? And I think one of the most powerful analogies in the book was that the only reason you can do it is for beauty and the fulfillment of your own soul. Like, you know, a mother doesn't have a child because it's going to gain her something. It's not going to make her famous or make her rich. She has a child for its own flourishing it's this selfless self-transcendent act of creating something inside of you and giving it to the world so that it may flourish in its own way and i'm trying to figure out what's my what's what's the end of my war of art right now and what's the end of your war of art and maybe you some insights will come from you that i can i don't know well i think to your point so you're again dear listener i will michael I, I look up to you a ton, Mike. You Likewise. work so hard. Like too. You work so hard, so incredibly disciplined, and you work so hard. When we work out together, you are doing your best to keep up with me, <laughs> and yeah, I hard. see you struggling. I see you struggling with those weights, and I'm like, look at him. He is trying. He is trying to go. I try. No, but you are disciplined, and the point is there's nowhere that you're arriving at. It's... It's the process and yep. it always is the process and never ends. And with, you know, wh- when they say about writing, so as the same with stand up is like, you know, the show ends. You never know if you're going to be hired again as a writer. It's not like there's something. It's just, if you will, it's a war of art, but mm-hmm. it's a, it's a never ending war. It's a process. You're in a hurricane. All of these things, writing, improv, sketch, stand up. Like I've got a lot of, I'm not saying that I, I'm just saying I've done a lot of stuff. I've yeah. been a dilettante. I've, I've just cross trained a ton, but writing People are always surprised that I'm a writer because they're like, you are 50 times more handsome than Michael and stronger than the world. And you get upset if I get to the gym before you, which I always do because I've lifted all of the weights. Yeah. And there's none left. There's none left. There's none left. And it's like, oh, I do love performing. I love being there in person. But frankly, my writing, when I do it, gets a ton of traction. And it's something I can always do. I can... It's me showing up and I miss the stage time, but I'm like, is that a luxury for me to tell what I need to do? Things have had a lot more success for me or in terms of I feel like have resonated with more people through my writing because I can bottle it. I can share that, whether it's something like Jurassic Park, Mm -hmm. which something like that goes at least L.A. viral in a sense where where like people in writers rooms are the, the audience that is like who this is for. And I will say, after watching all your various endeavors in the comedy world, the stuff like Jurassic Park and the more scripted material, like you wrote a spec script for Always Sunny Meets Kitchen Nightmares, and I can edit this out if you don't want to talk about it, but that's fine. you wrote that, and I was like, this is the best thing, not only that I've read of yours, but like this could be the 
like series finale. It was so well crafted and so well done. And like I, without your permission, sent it out to so many of my friends because like, uh-huh. you need to read this thing that Joe wrote. It's fucking amazing because knowing both of those shows and then you being able to to match the tone and marry them together in such a hilarious way. I was like, this is, I I got to find a way to make this available to more people. So I think you're kind of narrowing in on that sort of, like you said, bottling it, bottling your comedy and developing it and then putting it out in a way that's not necessarily contingent upon stage time. Yeah, with writing, I got representation through writing, yeah. right? It's like that resonates. There's some somebody out there, at least one person, and I can't praise him enough, but like he's like, oh, I can make money off this guy. And I can't tell you how many times I tried to get repped for, and I obviously I could have tried harder and worked harder for performing, and you can always work harder, but when I can just write and do it, and hopefully somebody fucking reads the thing, and sometimes they do, and if they do, amazing, and then I just got to keep on doing more, because like, what's next? Because mm-hmm. uh, I found I need to write for myself when I've tried to do things that are, to quote Stephen Press, or hack, where it's like, oh, yeah. this is commercial, this is what'll work. It's for a market, not it's for, for yourself. for a market, it's not... I, I'm not, frankly, I'm not the, at that level of professionalism mm-hmm. where I am just a, a craftsman, a worksman who does it. The things that have really resonated the most, whether it's that or Supreme Court Justice League or any of these other sorts of things, yeah. are me just doing fuck yous to whatever it is. I'm just like, nah, I'm writing this as a joke yeah. while another script is out to friends and I respect their opinions enough that I will not work on that script because I'm not going to make changes because I value their opinion enough, but I can work on this next thing. And all these things that were just for me, frankly, seem to have a lot more resonance. Whereas when I'm on stage, you're, you you really are hunting for that laugh all mm-hmm. the time. Like, you're working for it. You're doing the same joke over and over again. And again, this is all a roundabout way for my answer. If I can't give an answer to when you said, no, it's too painful. Mm. Why it's too painful for me to go to shows is A, I wish I were on stage, Mm -hmm. yes. But also, I see the work. I mean, I I see the work. And part of it is is this pain of that I did this for so long uh, that it's not as big a part of my life as it was. And if I can just compartmentalize and kind of excise it or amputate it, in a clean sort of fashion, it's, yeah. it's doesn't doesn't hurt as much, but it still really does hurt. Well, it's a loss. It's a it's a grieving process almost. Yeah, but it's but then I get back on stage and I'm like, I don't need to grieve, but I know what it is. And then I'm like, well, again, if we want to talk going back to opportunity cost, there's only so many hours yeah. that I have free because I have to work for a living, mm-hmm. and there's only so many hours that I have free and. In that time, how can I maximize the time that I do have? And it is so satisfying, don't get me wrong, like when you perform on stage, but you're getting five minutes. You're getting five minutes, five minutes, and so much time to get that precious, precious five minutes that makes that five minutes really precious. But that's hours and hours and hours for that five minutes. And again, I miss it, and I can't be more sincere. I miss it so much. But the opportunity cost of that versus I can sit down and I can just write. You know, writing is tremendously painful, right? Mm -hmm. So they say. But when you are in the pocket, or when I'm in the pocket, man, and I'm just going and going and going, man, that is such a great joy. And if people read it, amazing. If people never read it, well, I had that, or I have this, and it's for people out there. Well, the process is the product. It's all about the process. So here's something I don't think you know, but I had a blog in high school. Ooh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. I wrote every day for an hour and I posted it mm-hmm. and it was teenage angst. I'm sure. And it was a mix of angst and then me just being like, I'm the fucking tits. It was just vacillate between, you know, it's this teenage boy, you know, like I got everything angst going. And ego and yeah, insecurities, all that. All of it, and but I wrote every day for an hour, and I would play, and people would read it. And yeah. then when I found out that people were actually reading it, then I got scared mm-hmm. because then it's like, oh, I let them in, and they knew what it was. But at the same time, that really it was a lesson that a it really fucking resonated when my blog was in a New York Times magazine article. Whoa! And one of my football coaches read it. Yeah, and was like, "You didn't tell me how you felt." <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, like, 
Oh yeah. my god, and I and that that kind of killed me. But also, it's like hey, it's good that he knows. But then I, when I became conscious of the audience, that's a problem. It's a big problem. And then when I started writing to the audience, then it was no more fun, and I stopped. And I realized uh, you got to do that in order for people to uh, read it or watch it or or do whatever it is. And anyways, it's I, I've. I, you're I in lost, it, man. I lost you're, the plot. You're battling. No, you're, I've lost the plot. Like you haven't though. You're in it. It's this battle between writing for an audience versus writing for yourself. And then what do you do when the writing you've done for yourself starts to get an audience and vice versa? And there is no answer. I can't ask you what the next thing you want to do or need to do. It's just like I'm not sure I'm comfortable saying what the next thing I want to do or feel I need to do is because it terrifies me to say it out loud and maybe I won't say it out loud, but I, you're in there and I there's no answer I wanted to get from this podcast other than to know that we're going through it yeah well also maybe one of the pains and just to be honest is like was I not in terms of stand-up is like am I not good enough like am I not funny enough and I don't think that's true no, I don't think that's true I don't think that's true but it's like why didn't I work harder like why didn't I it's I beat myself up when I go to these shows because I'm like I could be on the stage and it doesn't kill me. It's like, oh, I wish I were on stage. It's like, I know what it takes and I didn't do the work. But then, then and, only you can answer whether you didn't do the work because of resistance or you didn't do the work because that wasn't in line with what you needed to do to fulfill your own artistic soul. And that's the real battle at the, at the heart of the war of art. You know, figuring out for yourself and answering that question. And I can't answer it. You know, I'd like to dig around a little bit just to hear your thoughts on that battle because I have my own war but i think that's the real thing is like only you can know whether you're just giving into resistance or you haven't found the thing you need to do and maybe you have and that's just writing and you're still showing up and doing it yeah not as much as i should the resistance is also when you write people don't have to know that you're not writing no that's yeah which is so the only person you, you hold pro. accountable yeah. is uh is yourself and to the point of who am i writing for and is it for the audience? Is it for me? Or that resistance that you're talking about? Something that he yeah. talks about is the resistance of like, oh, all the different activities. And I ask you to go play golf all the time. Yeah. And you never do. But golf has been recently like a big resistance for me. Also, alcohol. Mm. Big resistance. Because I go out on the golf course. But I was able to. Now I'm multitasking because I get loaded and I golf. And it's I'm not getting loaded separately. Yeah. Um, which is also a good thing. Um but when I go out golfing, oh, I I, <laughs> I recently uh, you haven't seen it. I got a or maybe you did. You I told got, me about it. Yeah, I got a cooler for my bag. Cool, and uh, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It makes a huge difference. But and that is a big distraction. But that is what uh, gets me into a sort of separate flow state where I'm just removing at least the ego, mm -hmm. and I'm pure self because all I can do is focus on the activity at hand. And I can find that pocket when I'm writing, and that's what I want. And the question is, do I want to actually share something eternal with the world that Stephen Press, like that is above and beyond myself? Do I want to subsume and, 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 and exist beyond my body and, and, and pour myself into these words, or am I just doing this for myself? And if I find that satisfaction for myself, mm -hmm. is that just, you know, is that masturbation is right. The act of writing just masturbation. If I'm not sharing, if I'm not actively trying to do something for other people, if it makes you a happy person, I don't see any fault in it. Well, I mean, but then what am I doing? Fighting the war, man. That's bullshit. What is the war? It's finding a way to sit down and do the thing you need to do to why? I mean, that's what it's for, for, it's for beauty to, to find something that's inherent in you that needs to be shared. So I guess there is an element of needing to share it with the world and ah, fuck that. Uh, I don't think there, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I, and I mean this like, and may, I'll retract it and maybe I'm just being contrary, but no, fuck that. Like it is pure ego when I'm on stage, man. Oh, that's me up there. Like. It's really exciting. Yeah. But the point is, there is the destruction of ego, the destruction of self, mm -hmm. which I am all about. All I want to do is destroy myself. Like, uh, disappear. I was saying this to somebody who I care very dearly about, and it uh, distressed her greatly, where she's like, if you could, like, 
what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to disappear. Like, and I can't just fuck off on a boat. But the, the reason why I say disappear, it's like the Taoist sages, you just disappear and you become nothing. You, you disappear up a mountain, become a rock in a field. You cease to be in the hurricane. You become a debris in the hurricane. Yeah, but there's two ways to do that. There's a creative way and a destructive way. You can destroy yourself, destroy your ego, find oblivion through distraction and drinking and abuse and whatever else. Or you can find ego dissolution through flow states which yeah, is that's what, what i'm that's what i'm kind of referring to and getting well, is not a flow state but writing no 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 I, I mean i don't i don't get it i do not have a i can confidently say at this point in my life i do not have a drinking problem no i don't think you do but at all but i'm saying i do disappear from time to time sure in that sense as opposed to disappearing in writing which i also do mm-hmm. like i have shut out again we were talking about disappearing from friends like i have disappeared from friends for a very long time i've uh, disappeared from significant others for a very long time mm-hmm. and if people are clear and they understand what it is and what matters to me one of the things he talks about in the war of art is he's like people are like oh isn't it isn't the solitude of writing difficult it's for me it's such a it's so liberating when i've gone off like and you know that i also love fly fishing yeah and i sound like uh, again this a very old man with my tweed my uh elbow patches and my golf and my fly fishing but the point is like these opportunities to really disappear and i've gone off into the woods and i've ridden for days like in alone in a cabin and i've done it and i love it and as much as i'm such an extrovert enough to be a performer yeah i love my alone time but i also love to perform so like what is the war of art why is the war of art Mm. why is art a war and i'm not just rearranging words to make I'm just trying to make sense of this for myself like, me too I who mean, is it for and I guess the thing is is that maybe there is that hope that you can reach out through time and connect with somebody and resonate and somebody can feel and laugh and um, and it makes all the difference and with comedy there's that great scene in um, with Martin Starr in what was that Judd Apatow show? Freaks and Geeks. Yes, in Freaks and Geeks, where Martin Starr comes home and he's a latchkey kid and he makes his shitty little after-school meal and it's just this kind of, it's this little montage of her music and he starts watching Larry Sa- and he's got a shitty day, he's been yeah. picked on at school. He starts watching um, Gary Shandling, not Larry Sanders, but Gary Shandling performing on Carson or something and it just takes him away from the world. And yeah. When I do comedy, is that something that I want to do? Is like I want to certainly. I I don't have that messianic thought that I'm going to be the one that makes somebody dissipate and, and forget about all their troubles and all their joys. When I write, at least when I when I'm performing stand-up comedy, that's what you're pretty much going for. Yeah. You know, like I've certainly gone up there and tried to upset people. That's not really what no, people no are there for. Yeah. Um, and you'll see that when there's so many comics who just say shit to upset, and it's just like, what? No, but like, what are you doing? It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, this is edgy. It's like, what, what, what are you, what are you doing? Are yeah. you? Point is, George Carlin doesn't hold up well. <laughs> uh, but when I can write something and and um. And to a certain extent, all of the things that we've mentioned so far, all these little trifles that are just funny and just like out there and they're wild and they're silly. And there mm-hmm. are a lot of things that I've written that I just don't have the guts to show people because it's how I really feel. Um, we need to read book two called Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield, which is about once you've mastered sitting down and doing the work, there's a point where you need to share the work, which he calls shipping it. And... For me, I don't know. I can't really give you any advice, but I'd say just keep writing. And for myself, I'd say I don't know what I'm going to do. But what advice would you have for creative for you? Boy? No, not maybe for me, but just for well, creative for you. Boy, my advice for you is, uh, you know, show up to the gym more. Yeah, be there because I'm there all the time. Do I mean, two a days, man. I do two a days. I try. It's hard. I do three days. Man, I'm working out right now. Um, Kegels. No, well, first off, I wouldn't. You, you're, you're. I wouldn't self-deprecate your modeling as being a glorified shoe salesman, which is partially true. But I would not. I was selling beds today, so. Yeah, there you go. Well, what you are is you are. You, no, you know what you are. You're an object of desire. Ooh. You're working that. to be a model. You're trying to. People want that life. 
They don't want the shoes. That's not what they're. That's not why they're modeling it. If they want the shoes, they'll just show the shoe. They're showing you and the lifestyle that you can get. It's like, ooh, here's this thing. How will this make your life better? And you are that better life, Mike. And just keep. Yeah, on and I don't want it to be it. just an aesthetic uh, desire. I want it to be a holistic desire. And that's why the point of this podcast is just trying to be a model person to the best of my ability on all fronts, not just, oh, that guy has abs. That's not that cool. Anyone can do that. Not anyone can do that because they have to do the work. True. They have to do the work is the thing. Like when uh, I've spoken about you behind your back to friends and they're like, how does he? I'm like, that's his job. Yeah. Like working out is your job. You do that not because, you know, people go to the gym for ego and narcissism. You are remarkably narcissistic. I'm joking. <laughs> not at all. Mike is not narcissistic at all. But <laughs> which is, no, I mean, in certain ways you, but not really. I was just going to say, like, you shame me for not washing my golf ball each hole. You're very narcissistic about I keeping. I never wash my golf ball. Yeah, you, you always shame me for having <laughs> dirty balls. Dirty balls. <laughs> so in, in certain ways you are an aesthete in that sense. But no, you you work hard and you show up and it's a job. And uh, I would not diminish that in any way for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. For the and and the fact that you find your outlets. I mean, you know better than I do in terms of when I was saying all oh, all the work that goes into five minutes of stage time. You go in and there's like turn left, turn right, show me your abs. Thanks. And then you're like, well, that was an hour drive to Santa Monica. Yeah. Now to go back. Yeah. Um. But my advice for anybody who wants to do it is, again, it's in Stephen Pressfield's book. He quotes it. So it's a quote from the Scottish guy, but I also closed my graduation speech with it. Oh, wow. Which is from Goethe. Goethe. Which is whatever you want to do or dream to do, begin it. Begin it now. Uh, Because if you really do have something to say, people want to hear it. Um, To quote, again, from stand-up, uh, Chris Rock said, tell them the truth. Yeah, that's what it all comes down to is telling your truth and then you got to share it. And my truth is that I'm a fraud. <laughs> You're not a fraud. No, it's that same thing. It's like I'm a fraud. Like I, I work so hard, but like have I done it? Like am I still doing it? But you what's know? doing it? it? Are you doing it? Are you, it doesn't matter if you if it's made you rich or famous. It matter if you're doing it. And I can't. I don't know what you do when you're alone. I don't know when you're if you get off the golf course and come home and pump out the pages you want to pump out, but I hope that you know reading that book inspired you because it definitely lit a fire under my ass to start a new project, which I'm, like I said, terrified of. I can't recommend the book highly enough for anybody mm-hmm. and everybody mm-hmm. in terms of talking about resistance uh, and what that really is and really identifying it. Like if you're able to corral something in your mind, if you're able to name it, whether it's you know, I was able to name it the sea Poseidon. I was able to name it, and then I'm able to kind of better understand it and parcel it instead of being yeah. subsumed by all this stuff. Anytime that it's like, oh, I need to clean the apartment. It's like, mm, that's resistance. Yeah. If that's the name that you want to give it. Or if I'm like, oh, I'm going to check out, I don't do Facebook anymore, but if like, oh, if I'm going to read Twitter or something like this, it's like, oh, no, that's resistance. Do I need to know? Is my life materially changed? No, but no. If you're a creative person, uh, nobody cares. Yeah, no one cares. Nobody cares. And I care. be okay with that. No, I, I mean, that's the you. thing. I care about you. When I say nobody cares, like take comfort in that. There's yeah. a there's a freedom and a liberty in the fact that who are you doing this for? You're doing it for yourself and yourself alone. And you can do it right now. Like in this moment, you could just pick up the phone and call that person you haven't called. Like yeah. you can... Do it right now. If you're going to do it, don't, again, don't say tomorrow. If you're going to, people are always like, oh, I want to get on stage. Like, oh, man, comedy looks fun. I want to do stand-up. It's like, well, fuck you. Go get on a mic. You have to buy a beer to perform. Mm-hmm. Do it. But don't say, oh, I've been meaning to do it. And I'm saying this pretty caustically as much to myself as anybody else. The The one virtue of that, of stand-up or something else, is you're there you got to do it because yeah. you're, you're forced to show up. You don't really have a choice and you do have a choice and that choice is to do it or not. Also, if you're like, Oh, which project am I going to pursue? Fuck it and pick. Yeah. And 
And once you've started that, that scares you the most. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I agree about that, but also at the same time, like I have also do the thing that you want to do. Right. There's a balancing act of what do you want to do and what scares you. And like I said, I can't tell you what to do. You can't tell me what to do. I can't tell anyone listening to this what to do. You got to feel it. And a, like you said, a book like War of Art will help with that reset and then getting in touch with that. But just fucking do it. I also think don't feel like you don't have the experience to do it. Yeah. Like I was saying, I was, again, quoting myself from when I was a teenager, but I wasn't quoting. I was quoting myself, quoting somebody else. Yeah. And I was right. Like I, I had enough stuff. We all have enough stuff. If you ever breathed, if you've ever had an experience, if you've ever said hi to somebody, if you've ever like wanted somebody, if mm -hmm. you've ever done anything, you've got enough stuff. You don't need to go out there and find more. You don't need to do more research. You just need to put the pen to the paper and talk about your experience. Okay. Just do it. Start it now. Mm -hmm. Right? Start it yesterday. Mm -hmm. Just start it. Do yeah, it. Do the it. other thing is you got to know what it is. Go and watch shows. When I was doing stand-up, I never found more inspiration than watching somebody else's set. Uh, if you watch something and you're like, I like this, I don't like this, that's going to help you find your voice as much as it is doing it. But don't let watching movies all day be research be just saying i'm doing research in order to yeah to prepare myself you to gotta write. start before you're ready because you're never gonna be ready you're never enough, ready but you can still seek inspiration while you're doing the thing because you gotta fucking do it and um i would say don't skip leg day except for the fact that mike skips leg day i don't think I've, we've ever done legs i deadlift my legs, I got these honey hams, man. They're too big already. See, but Mike just skips leg day. You don't have to. You don't have to do leg day, but he does the work, trains the pythons. Yeah, we're good to go. Um, thank you for doing this, man. I think uh, this was really helpful for me, at least. I don't know if anyone else is going to get anything out of it, but I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. I feel like this was uh, just, I know, you, you're like, wrap it up. No, we got nowhere to be. Uh, yeah, you do. You got you to gotta be at working on your next project. But true. Sorry. I just now I'm just like, oh, I'm burning. I just love having a mic in my face. <laughs> Obviously, I love <laughs> to talk. Uh, but I would say thank you, Michael. I mean, I'm very excited to have done this. I'm very excited to be considered um, for uh, Mike Talks to Joe, finally. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all within you. It's all within you. It always has been. It always will be. Um, uh, to quote my dear homeboy, Marcus Aurelius, who I can't recommend highly enough. And meditations. that's worth meditations is worth reading. It's also very, very quick. Which he wrote without ever expecting an audience. Without ever diary. expecting an audience. And it resonates with me. It kept me through. It kept me going through times where I w didn't, where I, I've never been more unhappy in my life. And it might be next in our book review series. One of the things he, one of his little aphorisms is, uh, goodness is a well. Just keep digging. Amen. Well, thanks again, brother. Mic drop. Bye, kids. <laughs>